This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. State lawmakers reconvene in about two weeks. And before then, we're talking about legislation that has died in the past, but that will be brought back to life. In other words, zombie bills. We are speaking with lawmakers who hope this is the session that a bill they're passionate about will pass. We want to know what they've done to clear a path. And today's subject is... Rain barrels. Rain barrels. Rain barrels. Yes, rain barrels. State Representative Jesse Danielson, a Wheat Ridge Democrat, thinks Coloradans should be able to collect rainwater. Her bill, allowing folks to have... Two 55-gallon barrels failed in the final days of the last session, and a welcome to the program, Representative. Thank you, Ryan. So first off, where would I put these barrels, and how could I use the rainwater? So it's a pretty simple bill. Um, It would allow Colorado residents to have two rain barrels that they could hook up to their gutters. So instead of the water flowing during a storm event onto part of their lawn, or into their window wells or wherever it goes, they could collect the water into these barrels and then put it on their gardens a little later, their flowers, their tomato plants, whatever they grow. All right. And do you spell out what the water can and can't be used for? Yes, it's very clear. The water could only be used for outdoor irrigation, and it has to remain on the property which it's collected. And how should I picture these rain barrels? Wooden, plastic, uh, looking a bit like trash cans or what? Yeah, uh, they kind of vary, but you can purchase them now, actually. You can go into a Lowe's or a Home Depot. Um, They look kind of like big 50-gallon drums. Um, But like I said, they kind of vary where you attach your gutter to the top. It collects the rain. And then some of them have little spigots or spouts at the bottom to where you could attach a hose or just drain it out that way. Okay. And this is not water that I could uh, eventually drink. Let's just be clear. To be very clear, it is not potable water. (laughs) Why do you want this? Well, for several reasons. Uh, One, it's a pretty simple and straightforward water conservation method that Colorado residents could engage in if they choose. Um, It helps us better understand our water usage. Um, In a state like Colorado, where it's such a precious commodity, even the smallest amount of water conservation could make a difference. So you think that uh, watering a lawn, for instance, with this water would be a conservation measure? Absolutely. It doesn't take an expert in water law to understand that watering your lawn or your garden or your flower bed with rainwater is a heck of a lot better than turning on the faucet and using drinking water to water it. But this is currently illegal in Colorado, isn't it? It is. In fact, it's the only state uh, that prohibits the use of rain barrels. The only state in the union Mm -hmm. uh, that includes other western states which have made provisions for this? Uh, Yes, we're the only state in the nation, including a lot of other Western states where water is such a huge issue. Why two 55-gallon barrels? How did you come to that size and that quantity? Well, actually, we just started with 50 and changed it because we found that that's the most readily available amount when you purchase a rain barrel in the store. Okay. Uh, Apparently, the most readily available size is a 55-gallon barrel, so we just changed it to accommodate the consumer. And you want to limit folks to two. Any particular reason? We thought that was a reasonable place to start. Um, It also is an amount that, through our research, 
showed no real impact on downstream users. And so it just seemed like a reasonable amount um, that could facilitate the water conservation by the consumer um, and protect the uh, water downstream users need. All right. You floated a bill repealing this ban, uh, and it had bipartisan support last session. During debate over the bill in the State House, a number of critics voiced their concerns that even if Coloradans think they have a right to rain falling from the sky, in fact, they do not. Here's Republican Representative Tim Dore of Elizabeth. I think there's a, especially those that live in the urban area, a logical question that comes to mind is why can't I just collect the rainwater that comes off my roof? It's my water. And the answer is because no, it's not your water. And I know that doesn't sometimes make sense, but here on the, in the West, water belongs to the system. It doesn't belong to you. And he went on to say, But the right doesn't exist to grab that water off your roof and use it for your beneficial use, even if you think it'll go back in stream. How do you respond? Well, I understand the concerns that were voiced during the session last year by my colleagues and those colleagues across the aisle. Um, but... Our research showed that there was no impact on downstream users. And in fact, there was an interim water committee that met this summer, and it weighed these issues around rain barrel usage and rainwater storage. And in fact, um, Colorado State University and their experts testified in front of this interim committee, and they presented their conclusions that, in fact, there was no impact on downstream water usage. Let's say this, that every drop of water in Colorado is somewhat spoken for Mm -hmm. uh, with people who have water rights, some much older than others and who can make a call on water upstream. And the concern here is that you are robbing Peter to pay Paul in some some respects. You don't believe that to be the case based on the research that you have seen. Correct. And, you know, I grew up on a farm in Colorado, and I want to honor and respect the water laws and the water rights that are in place. Um, but as a farmer's daughter, I can say that this bill is just good Colorado common sense. If it promotes water conservation and it doesn't have an impact on downstream water usage, We should, by all means, allow residents to engage in this type of water conservation if they choose. But if every drop of water in Colorado is spoken for and your lawn absorbs that drop of water, isn't that a taking? Isn't that a stealing of someone else's property? Well, um, I would respond by saying it's still going into the lawn or it's still going into your tomato plants or your flower bed. You're just putting it in um, a barrel to save it for a while until it becomes a little more useful and a little bit more efficiently used. So it's still going into the ground. You're just delaying it by a short while. All right. In a rebuke of your bill, Republican State Senator Jerry Sonnenberg of Sterling said there needed to be more information about the number of Coloradans who would use rain barrels. Uh, We reached out to Senator Sonnenberg and asked him to be on the show. He didn't take us up on that offer, but he did email us back saying he's crafting legislation as well. And it might involve uh, the state engineer with some idea that you would register a rain barrel with the state engineer. So there could be a tracking early on of the impact on water, if any. What do you think of that approach? 
Well, in the interim, uh, we did meet with opponents of the bill last time, including Senator Sonnenberg, in a good faith effort to sit down and really listen and understand what their concerns are. So right now, we're continuing that conversation. Uh, Senator Merrifield and Representative Esgar and I, and along with Senator Sonnenberg and a, a bipartisan number of lawmakers, are really working to see if there's room for compromise. However, it's early on, and so uh, I'm hopeful that the bill will be more successful this year. Uh, But uh, we have to wait and see a little bit on that. And to this idea of perhaps involving the state engineer in some way uh, and tracking rain barrels, would you be amenable to that? I think that if it makes sense for the consumer, meaning the residents across the state, if it makes sense to where they still engage in this kind of water conservation practice uh, and it's not too burdensome on the water provider, we would be open to certain ideas like that. Have you spoken with Senator Sonnenberg since the session? Yes, we have. All right. And those conversations continue. Yes. Um, You know, this could... How many years have you tried this, by the way? The first year was last year. Okay. And so this would be the second. And did you learn something, would you say, about the legislative process or about the kinds of conversations you must have for a bill to be successful last year that you'll apply to this one? Certainly. When we were considering whether or not to do the bill again, there were two big reasons that I felt were important enough to run the legislation again. The first would be the evidence that CSU produced in the interim. That was different. That should help alleviate some of the concerns uh, that folks had about prior appropriation, etc., because the evidence said that there was no impact on downstream use. So that should really put those folks at ease a little bit. Secondly, When I went out into the community, and I do that a lot to listen to constituents at town halls or happy hours or coffees, it was an overwhelming response and kind of a demand to bring the bill back because they really want this thing to pass. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. That is State Representative Jesse Danielson. She's a Democrat from Wheat Ridge, and we will cover the fate of her rain barrel measure in the coming session. Coming up, cracking a medical mystery. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A mysterious kidney disease, which has killed thousands of farm workers in Central America, could be linked to climate change. That's the focus of today's beta test, where we explore scientific discovery. This story begins about 20 years ago, far from Colorado, with a young Salvadoran medical resident. Ramon Garcia Trebanino was working at a hospital in the capital city, San Salvador. Many of his patients were afflicted with a kidney disease that didn't appear in textbooks. So uh, I started asking questions. Uh, why? Why so many patients? Where are they coming from? What is causing their disease? But there was no answer. Dr. Trebanino and some colleagues found that the patients had a similar profile. They were mostly poor agricultural workers living in the coastal areas of Central America and southern Mexico. An early theory was that the disease was linked to pesticides or heavy metals in the water, but they quickly ruled those out. Then they looked at working conditions. This is back-breaking labor. Many of the men cut sugar cane with machetes. They go into the field and start with their machete. They bend down and start cutting. 
then they had to walk sideways to throw the cane into a, a line. Well, Trabinino and his colleagues did more tests. In 2012, he began working with Dr. Richard Johnson at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Dr. Johnson just published an article in Scientific American that suggests the condition could be linked to climate change. He spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. We've mentioned there have been thousands of deaths. Parts of Nicaragua have been called land of the widows. And you've been to these areas. And describe the toll that the disease is taking. Oh, it's a terrible thing in the rural communities. Um, Families where several of the men uh, have all died. And then oftentimes the the sons start uh, working because they have to bring money in for their family. And so they're starting early in life. And they it's like a cycle. It's a trap. So, yeah, it's very sad. What's causing the illness? Well, we think that it's due to heat stress. And the problem is that these workers go out early in the morning, but they work into the afternoon when it gets extremely hot. And uh, they don't have always uh, so much ability to get fluids and so forth because they're out on the fields. There's not a lot of shade, and they get recurrently dehydrated every day. You know, for years, we thought that dehydration itself didn't cause chronic kidney disease. We thought it could cause acute problems. You could have a heat stroke, but we didn't think that they would get chronic kidney disease. And um, a big insight was when we started studying animals in the laboratory and discovered that recurrent heat stress and dehydration could cause chronic kidney disease. We'll talk a little bit more about this dehydration in a bit, but you've suggested there's a link to climate change. And um, how do you know that? Or what makes you think that? Well, there's uh, several things. First off, uh, it's quite clearly linked with being in a hot tropical environment. And we've now identified similar epidemics in Sri Lanka, in India, in Thailand, in Mexico, And they're all in the same kind of setting. They're people working outside manually uh, in very hot environments. And when we look at temperature or climate maps, for example, in Central America, the hottest regions are along the Pacific coast, and they map exactly to where these workers are developing the disease. And we can look at sugarcane workers, for example, who are working at a higher altitude in the same country. They're exposed to the same chemicals, the same pesticides, but they don't get the kidney disease and they're in a cooler environment. But how do we know it's related to climate change? So we do know that the uh, from studies that were done recently, we do know that this disease was around even in the 1970s, but it's it clearly has been increasing maybe four to five fold in the last 20 years. Part of it is because of better detection, but it clearly is getting worse because you can look at mortality rates and so forth, and it clearly is rising in these different countries. What's interesting is, you know, originally we didn't, we were maybe even a little skeptical, could this really be related to climate change or not? Because the mean temperatures change in climate's only been about 0.8 degrees Celsius in the last 30, 40 years. That doesn't seem like a lot. It's significant, but it doesn't seem like a lot. But what the climatologists tell us is that although the average or mean change in temperature has only been about 0.8 degrees, the heat waves or the heat extremes has increased almost uh, 50 to 75 percent due to climate change. And so there are these days that are extremely hot, and these heat waves are defined as, you know, about 4 to 5 degrees Celsius higher than normal. 
and they do correlate with the increasing risk for this kidney disease because we think that this kidney disease is driven by heat stress. Mm. I'll, I'll give you the best evidence that we have, and it's not, not you know, the ideal perfect evidence, but two years ago, uh, Ramon Garcia. Who we heard from. Yes. yes. So Ramon was uh, studying sugarcane workers in El Salvador, and we also had a group of sugarcane workers in Nicaragua. And we were looking at their urines, and we found evidence of recurrent dehydration. And every time they would go in to work, we would get a sample in the morning and then a sample at the end of the day. So we could look at at how the heat stress during the day affected them. And we would see, occasionally we would see crystals of uric acid and some of these substances that we think are actually causing some of the kidney damage. And it would be, you know, like uh, any particular day, there'd be like 10 or 20% of the workers would have this. But of the four days that we sampled, one day, basically all the workers had the crystals. So I said, there's something special about that day. So I Googled it. Chris, Google's great. And uh, it turned out to be one of the hottest days of that entire year. And then that was the trigger that made me realize that what's probably been going on is everyone's always at risk for heat stress. You worked exceptionally long. You don't drink enough. But the problem is, is these heat waves. And, uh, and there's probably these people are probably getting intermittent damage to their kidneys on those extreme days. And I think what happens is, you know, they're used to going out every day and expecting the temperature to be roughly the same. And so they aren't prepared when a big heat wave comes in. They may bring the same amount of water they were originally bringing for a regular day. So this is why I think uh, climate change is playing a role. It's uh, not because of the change in the mean temperature, but it's these heat extremes, the heat waves. You've also theorized that the workers are drinking soda and sugared water to rehydrate instead of regular water, and that's making it worse. We actually found that with dehydration, that fructose, which is a component, a sugar present in soft drinks, actually is generated with heat stress, believe mm-hmm. it or not. And it's generated in the kidney, and it actually causes some of the kidney damage. So when you drink soft drinks, you are loading yourself with fructose in a disease that's driven by fructose. Ramon talked about how um, this disease he had never seen before. He hadn't read it in his medical textbooks. If people have been doing backbreaking work in hot temperatures for years and years and years, wouldn't this disease have been noticed at some point in some country around the world? Yes. So when we go into the literature we actually find that there is this unknown disease that occurs in the rural areas that's been known for decades. And it's been seen in India. It's been seen in Thailand. It's been seen in Sudan. It's been seen in Egypt. And it always looks the same. It's a disease we call chronic interstitial nephritis. And no one knows the cause. Mm. But when you start looking at it, you go, oh, my gosh. It's been there all along. It's just that it's getting worse. So you've identified this disease um, and linked it to dehydration, possibly climate change. What does that help you with now? You know, knowing this is one thing, getting these folks treated is another in many rural areas where they may not have access to health care. 
Well, there's two big things that come out of this. The first one is if we actually understand the cause of this disease, now we can go in and try to figure out how to help these people. If you can hydrate them with non-sugary drinks, that will help tremendously. We can block these pathways. We're going to do a study next year where we're going to actually give allopurinol, which uh, lowers uric acid and may help protect. Uh, So we can improve worksite practices, put up tents and shade. and So this is one of the big, two big things that's coming out of this work. There's another big thing that's coming out of this work that's maybe even more exciting in one sense. Because what we're really doing is we're identifying the cause of a kidney disease. And when we look at this, we actually see that in even in our society, in, in people running around downtown Denver, that people aren't drinking enough water. And we're now beginning to link inadequate water intake or low water intake with the risk for progression of chronic kidney disease. So we may get some insights from this, this quote, rare thing in the communities, which probably isn't as rare as we think. But as we figure this out, it may actually help us for everybody. That is CPR's Andrea Dukakis speaking with Dr. Richard Johnson of the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Their conversation is part of Beta Test, our series about scientific discovery in the state. And we'll be right back with some of the best new music to come out of Colorado in 2015. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The hosts at Open Air, Colorado Public Radio's new music service, have made lists of their favorite releases from 2015. A lot of Colorado artists stood out, including Nathaniel Rateliff, who had a big moment when he performed this summer with his band The Night Sweats on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. Look at him, baby, I'm coming on, on my knees, Open Air's music director Jesse Witten joins us to highlight some of the best new music to emerge from Colorado this year. Jesse, welcome. Thanks, Ryan. The music story out of Colorado that tops the list, really, was the, the hit debut album from Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats. What do you like about uh, this record? It's the whole way around. It's just so enjoyable to hear these guys with a full sound like this. Of course, everyone at Open Air has been a huge fan of Nathaniel Rateliff for years and years with his various sounds that he's taken up. He keeps morphing. He keeps morphing to everyone's delight because there's just so much to offer throughout his discography. And in this project, it's him with Colorado's best. That's what really makes it stand out to me. It's him with the most people he's brought on stage, and they're all so charismatic. You've got Mark Schusterman, who's an incredible keyboardist. It's hard to look away from him when they're doing a live performance. (laughs) You've got Joseph Pope, who he's been with for years in in other things. He's worked with him in Born in the Flood, and they come together to make something really special. So this is the track, I Need Never Get Old. It's a lovely song. One of the first of theirs I saw. Landlines. Oh, here we go. I know that some will say... Matters a little bit. Oh, but come on and mean it to me. I need it so bad. I need it to try. Never get old. 
Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats. I'm so glad we had that track. I was already moving on to Landlines, which is a, another Colorado band that had a big year. What would you say is unusual about Landlines sound? It's it's this incredible moodiness, this atmosphere that they make with just three instruments. It's cello, there's percussion. And uh, these three folks have been together for about five years, but previously a couple of members had been working on something similar in a band called Madsen Jones. And it's just special because you can't get it anywhere else. And it makes sense you'd be going on the landlines from Nathaniel Rateley for the Night Sweats. Both of these bands had their first appearance on the uh, tiny desk from uh, NPR NPR Music. So big years for both of them. And of course, they've both gotten signed to these big labels, Landlines, on Mizra, and finally got their release on that label this summer. So finally, everyone else gets to enjoy this kind of intensity. Love the vocals in this. Lovely. Like it hurts me Are they dead and gone? Another band that got attention in 2015 was Strawberry Runners. And uh, NPR once again highlighted them as part of their coverage of the South by Southwest Music Festival. Uh, This is a single they released in May called Hatcher Creek. Strawberry Runners, it's hard to be depressed listening to that music. It is, isn't yeah. it? It's such a bright, sunny sound, but when you really do listen to the lyrics, there's a lot of substance there, and some of it is dark substance. A lot of it is about childhood abuse, some things that would traumatize people, but working it out through song in this kind of lovely, sweet way. There's what a, a lot going on. What a juxtaposition, yeah. I know. It's, it's a great way to work things out. It's why music exists. The song Hatcher Creek from Strawberry Runners. So the Yoppers are another Denver band that found success at South by Southwest in Austin. They landed a record deal after their 2014 performance there. Tell us about the album they released this year. I think it's called American Man. Well, this is a really exciting album because they went into it with some very specific things in mind. It's kind of themed. They wanted each of the songs to be from the point of view of an American Western man. So you can find that in each of the songs, but also the leading man, Nate Cook, he gets in a lot of his own personal demons out in the songs as well. But you mentioned South by Southwest, their performance there. What really stands out about this local band is they are incredible on stage. They are live performers to a T. They leave it on the stage. They, I feel like they must injure themselves after every performance. But they did get dis- discovered at South by because the label went out to check them out. Bloodshot Records saw them live and realized we have to work with these guys. This is called Deacon Brody from American Man. Just cut by my own hand But I won't be a 
That is an intense sound, and one you say that's uh, best seen live? Best seen live. These guys will throw your own back out just seeing them perform <laughs> wild men on stage. So that's American Man, and uh, the band is the Yoppers. Switching gears here, Sir Els is a Denver artist whose music might be described as neo-soul or R&B. Tell us a little bit about his music, and Sir Els is spelled S-U-R. S-U-R-E-L-L-Z, in fact. Okay. And I actually just stumbled across this uh, fella. It's it's one man, really. When I was at the UMS, the Underground Music Festival down on South Broadway, just in the summertime, I was walking by a venue and I saw three folks, one just sitting in the middle and the other dancing around. I said, this looks special. This is unique for Denver. And uh, I stopped, took a listen, and it's something really unique for Denver. It's a sound that I think we're going to hear more and more in the coming years. But it's this True R&B sound, but using these tactics that are really special, using this layering, this kind of looping feature that makes the music hypnotic. And maybe makes his sound bigger than one man, you might imagine. It echoes it to make it something so much bigger. You're right. Oh, we've got to hear that. So this is Sir Els from his release this summer, Gotta Find Love. So I can get that close to you, because I might just break your heart. There is a lot going on there. There definitely is. And, you know, he, he doesn't have a full-length release yet, technically. He's put out an EP in November, but it's nine tracks. That's just as good as a full-length. So there's a lot to check out here. Yeah, I want to hear this about ten more times so that I've tracked everything it's doing. <laughs> you can make your own covers project after that. There you go. It's just like I'm following the vocal, and then I'm following some of the sound effects there. That's Sir L's. You know, Jesse Witten from Open Air, we've talked a lot about Denver musicians, but you also wanted to highlight a Colorado Springs native named Winston Yellen, who uh, releases records as Nightbeds. His new album is called Ivy Wild. And this is the track Me, Liquor, and God. I've never been enough All those synthesizers make me want to get my 80s shoulder pads and and big hair out. (laughs) Dance it out, dance it out. But what's great about this album is that there are 16 different tracks. So it covers a lot of ground. A lot of the songs are pretty diverse. And you'd never know it. You like the synthy sound. But the previous album from 2013 had a distinctly folk country sound to it. This is a completely different sound for Nightbeds, and it's, a, it's an exciting album to point out for a Colorado music lover because it's called Ivy Wild, giving a shout-out to uh, Colorado Springs' neighborhood that he used to play music in. Ah. And it shows what great stuff is going on in Colorado Springs because that very neighborhood has just gotten some great music venues in that space. So, I love the vocals on this, too. He's an incredibly talented vocalist, and you can see the full range in the 16 tracks on this album. 
track is Me, Liquor, and God. That's from the Colorado Springs native Winston Yellen, who goes by Nightbeds. Jesse Witten, thanks for sharing a year in music with us. Thanks, Ryan. Anytime. I'm just downstairs. Jesse Witten is music director at CPR's Open Air. There are more of her recommendations and others from Open Air hosts at openaircpr.org. Tomorrow, we'll look at some of the year's best releases from Colorado's classical music scene. Coming up, why being a father is a lot like burrow racing. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Autism and the very Colorado sport of pack burrow racing come together in a memoir by Hal Walter. Walter is a rancher and columnist for Colorado Central. His book is called Full Tilt Boogie. Walter lives near Westcliff in the mountains west of Pueblo and has a son with autism. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. We're going to get to the pack burrow part of your story in just a moment, but let's hear a bit about your daily life. So you, your wife and son live in a pretty remote place, one that's normally quiet, but your life is not quiet. Um, I'd like to have you read a passage from the book. Sure. Over the years, I have struggled to put words to the screaming, shrieking, and other noises that Harrison often makes. Is it enough to say it's loud? That sometimes it seems a constant in our lives with few intermissions? That it's grating like fingernails on a chalkboard? That often, especially in the morning, it can make me believe there are steel marbles rattling around inside my hollow cranium? That there are times it is so startling that I completely forget what I am doing, and so distressing it renders me perfectly useless for hours? That sudden outbursts have nearly caused me to lose control of the wheel while driving? How does one spell those sounds, those screams, that screeching? Gosh, that must be really tough. And I I don't imagine there is much of anything that can prepare you for that. You know, there really isn't. Um, You know, our daily life can be quite challenging, I guess, depending on on what sort of a mood Harrison is or, or... uh, what level of cooperation he he decides to go about his day with. He's your only child. He's 11 now, right? Yes. Yeah. It's so interesting. I could picture you at your computer or typewriter or whatever, however you write, trying to convey the sounds you hear in written word. Yes. And, and early on, I had read The Horse Boy. The author of The Horse Boy does actually spell out sounds his son made. And I think that's where I got the idea of doing that. At one point in time, I decided I would just uh, turn on my iPhone and and make a recording of Harrison. And then I would try to sound out phonetically those sounds. And that didn't really work either. But what did happen is through the the marvels of modern technology, somehow that uh, audio file ended up on my iPhone iTunes. And one day we were driving in the car and that thing came over the stereo and and Harrison just went berserk over the the um idea of hearing himself making those noises I actually had to pull the car over and get the recording stopped and wait for him to calm down as a radio person I'm inclined to ask you for that file but it feels so personal and so intimate you know it is and and um 
and it might seem out of context to the listener as well, because you would need to know the whole background of how, of what was going on before the file was made. And it was all about a, um, a conflict over trying to get him to do his homework, which is a, another whole challenge that we face pretty, pretty regularly. He is in a mainstream classroom with, uh, you know, regular neurotypical kids. And we have always tried to keep him working at the same level that the other kids do. But that, that is also really challenging. So as we mentioned, you're a Packboro racer as well. And in these races, you run usually for many miles through the mountains, leading a donkey that's loaded with a pack that weighs uh, at least 30 some odd pounds. And you have found parallels between this sport and raising an autistic child. What are the parallels? Well, first off, the, the you know, the pack burrow racing has been going on here since 1949. It started out as a, a race between the towns of Leadville and Fairplay over a 13,000 foot mountain pass. And originally that race was 23 miles, but the sport has evolved to include six different races over the course of the summer. And the heart of the matter is now a 29 mile world championship from the small town of Fairplay up to the top of Mosquito Pass, which is 13,197 feet in altitude. And when you stand back and think about that, the, the challenge of, of running 29 miles yeah. up a 13,000 foot pass with a loaded burrow, you know, most people wouldn't even start out on that. And in fact, most people don't. I find a metaphor there that parenting an autistic child seems like an impossible journey. Uh, it's, it's something so daunting and so difficult that, um, you know, a lot of people wouldn't know where to begin with, with that. Being out there, I wonder if you've said, I can do this because I've raised Harrison. Or have there been times when the, or, or the, where the opposite happens, where it's like, you know, you're in, in, a, in especially trying time with Harrison, you're saying, I can do this. I've done burrow racing, you know. Yes. And, and I, I realize I've been at burrow racing, I think, 30, 30 something years, let's say maybe 35 years. Yeah. And, uh, and I realize that the sport has been preparing me in terms of endurance and patience all this time for what I would encounter as a, as a father. And that was pretty much how I came up with the idea for the book. Yeah. Um, the other thing that that's very interesting about this this parallel, if you will, is that you know no burrow is going to get up in the morning and and decide to run up a thirteen thousand foot mountain pass, and no autistic child is going to get up in the morning and say, "I think I'll conform with societal norms today." It just doesn't. <laughs> neither of those things are within their their scope of focus at all. And so the the question becomes: How do you work with these? beings to succeed. You had dreams before Harrison was born of sharing your love of the outdoors and of ranch life with your son. Has that happened? Well, it was real interesting. You know, early on, I think when your partner's pregnant and then as you, you know, you have a baby in the house, you start to think of all the things you'll do together. And, and the first thing that you start to think of is sharing the things that you know and love with your child. And so from early on, I thought, well, we'll get him riding the burrows. We'll go on pack trips overnight in the mountains. We'll, we'll go fishing. We'll do all this stuff. And, and to the point where even as soon as he could be in a backpack, 
I was out there fly fishing in creeks in the Sangre de Cristos with, with Harrison in a backpack. And as soon as he could, he could sit in a saddle, we had him just sitting in the saddle of a burrow and, and then short rides just around the driveway and then out on neighboring Bear Basin Ranch. And, and this was all preparing him for, we went on an overnight pack trip when he was three over Music Pass, which is about an 11,000 foot pass. And so at that young age, he was riding a burrow over pretty mountainous terrain and camping out, which was great. But um, subsequently, we had a couple of wrecks. And um, in the final wreck, he fell off a burrow at what was really slow motion and um, fractured his arm. And for quite some time after that, he was not interested in riding a burrow. And I began to question whether the whole thing was just my own stuff that I, that I was projecting and, and whether it was worthwhile at all to have even gone through this entire exercise. And so I gave up on it. And then as soon as I gave up on it, just last fall, he asked to ride. And now we can't go into the mountains without him, you know, climbing on a burrow and even riding stretches of trail that, that I really don't want him to ride because they're so rugged or slippery or whatever. And I don't, you know, I don't know why that's changed again. You write in the book that sometimes when you point out like an elk or a deer from the car, Harrison will keep looking at his video game and say, I'm not interested in animals over and over again. Um, Yes, I'm not interested in elk. I'm not interested in turkeys. I'm not interested in deer. And um, it's become almost a running joke now. I'll say, look at those elk. And he'll, he'll, he has this big smile on his face. And he'll look up at the elk now and, and then back down at his iPad. I'm not interested in elk, he says, with a, with a smile. So it's, it's become almost a running joke. But it sounds like that too may change. Who knows? Um, it might change. That's probably why I keep, keep trying. Right. And, uh, <laughs> that's the... Now I found humor in it. So, you know, that's good too. <laughs> yes. And I suppose these are lessons any parent can identify with. I would think so. I, I think uh, um, many of the things that we go through are not that different from the things that parents of neuro- neurotypical children go through. No. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Hal Walter, rancher, columnist, father, outdoorsman, and Packborough racer about his new memoir, Full Tilt Boogie. Walter lives near Westcliff, and this book is a combination of his love for his son Harrison, who has autism, and his love of the sport of Packborough racing, in which he has had some tremendous successes. You write that you didn't really want to have children, uh, but now you play a big role in your son's life. Let's talk about the difference between being a father of a child with autism versus a mom. Um, what do you notice about those roles? Well, in our case, the, the roles are in, in some ways reversed, I think, from what a traditional family setup has been. And, and this also is explained in the book yeah. where when, when Harrison was first born, I, I had, I think, you know, the typical Westcliff scenario of three or four jobs, maybe more. I was making most of the money in the household and Mary was working part time. And, uh, I, I subsequently was, was let go from my newspaper job, which cut the income in half around there. And Mary had the opportunity to go back to work full time. And so I became the, probably the primary caregiver. I'm there after school, um, 
hanging out at the playground with him, picking him up from school, obviously, going to a lot of functions when when Mary's at work, and just in general being a, a stay-at-home dad who also works on the side. And how is that switch for you? Well, it's been fine. And, and you touched upon it earlier. I'd never planned to have children or expected to have children. So this has been quite an adjustment for me, but I think one that that I've grown into and grown with probably as well as can be expected. What has it taught you about yourself? I think it, it's taught me that, that I have a certain amount of patience that I, I never realized I had before, that there's a deeper empathy that I had never realized before, and a, a level of caring that, that I didn't know that I, that I had before having Harrison. Do, it makes me wonder if you like yourself more now. <laughs> I don't know that I like myself more, but I think I, I tend to cut myself more slack now. Before, I, I just never, I just never cut myself any slack, and and now I can sit back and say, you know, you're doing pretty good despite all this, and and you're doing okay. How do you manage with Harrison out in public? Uh, he can have outbursts, and he can be loud, and. You know, that that can be uncomfortable, I imagine. It is uncomfortable. And, you know, in Westcliff, it's it's kind of interesting because most people know us. And he is loud. I have this, you know, running um, joke with him about turn down the volume. But he rarely turns down the volume. And, you know, we can go into the store and people who don't know him, you know, they turn and they look, you know, who is this kid? Why is he so loud? And And he just doesn't understand that, you know, you, you're interrupting other people's activity, train of thought, whatever. And it's not uncommon for him to barge to the front of the line at a checkout and, you know, ask for something or, or try to help with checking out. And, and there's just always something you never, you never know what's going to happen next. Uh, typically I have learned to, just ignore other people and and not care what they think. And that, that's been really helpful for me and, and, and probably another area in which I've grown. Uh, there have been some incidents where things have gotten so out of control with Harrison, with Harrison that I've had to actually remove him from stores. And in those instances, it's much more difficult. How does your wife Mary deal with that? I think that because she doesn't have as much experience with it as I do. I think I've taken him to more places in public than she has, that it might be more embarrassing to her at this point in time and more difficult for her to deal with. But she, you know, she does pretty well with it as well. But I'm, I'm probably more comfortable when he has an outburst or acts up in a store or a public place than she is. Well, we started this conversation by talking about the sounds that Harrison makes, and um, some of them are musical as well. I understand yes. that he's he's obsessed with Mumford and Sons these days. He really is. He um, probably knows the lyrics to all of their songs, and we in fact went to their concert when they played down in Taos. And um, and, and Harrison takes weekly piano lessons, and he plays percussion in band at school, and he he's a very musically inclined person and and really very talented and and recently in the school talent show he and his friend Mara sang one of the songs from the movie Frozen and they they won third place in the in the local talent show 
Uh, congratulations to him. What is his favorite Mumford & Sons song? We'll go out on this. He's really into their new album right now, and, and okay. he likes that song, Wilder Mind. I know that. That's what we'll leave with. Hal, okay. a, a pleasure to speak with you. Okay, thank you. It's in my blood, it's in my water. You tried to tame me, tame me from the start. Hal Walter's memoir is called Full Tilt Boogie. We spoke earlier this year. That's Colorado Matters for today, with special thanks to Brad Turner. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. <laughs>